Hey, welcome to our podcast on the art of relationships. We're your hosts. I'm Tim Milhoff. And I'm Chris Grace, and we're with the Biola University Center for Marriage and Relationships. So we're here to talk about all things relationships. We're glad to have you joining us. Come to see us again if you miss this opportunity to hear all the podcasts and you want more tools or resources, or even if you've spent time with us, go to our website, cmr.biola.edu. We have an entire center on marriage and relationships in which we're dedicated to providing resources and tools and integrating two cool things, ready? The timeless cross-cultural truths of scripture with scholarly insights and wisdom that we've taken from a variety of perspectives, and then applying those to relationships um, from marriages all the way through any kind of relationship that you're in and any way in which you can provide help to you. That's what this podcast and that's what our center is all about. So we're excited to be here again, Tim. And feel free to go to our website and offer some comments about the podcast. We've already received some great feedback from people. One person had a great comment that said, hey, I really loved what you did last time, but I could really use more cowbell. (laughs) Guess what? I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. <laughs> I think that was you that actually wrote that. <laughs> yes, I did. It was, okay. a, it was a write-in. Uh, so last podcast, we discussed the fact that no marriage is in a vacuum. Every marriage has a context. Every marriage is like in culture. And that culture really does deeply impact us. Last podcast, we mentioned two things. One, we mentioned something called affluenza, Mm -hmm. that as Americans, we constantly play this game of bigger and better. I want a bigger house. I want a better marriage. And that it just breeds dissatisfaction. Uh, The other factor we talked about was hurry sickness. We are just crazy individuals. I love what one person said, that we yell at a microwave to hurry up for crying out loud. My wife always gets frustrated at me because no matter what, I put something in a microwave, no matter what I do, I, I put in 40 seconds, I cannot wait 40. Who's got 40 consecutive seconds? No one does. So I always stop it with like two seconds left, three seconds left, and it just drives my wife crazy. So those are the first two. But mm-hmm. here's another one to consider. An overly romantic view of marriage that we have today. Mm-hmm. It's like when we watch the movies, we see a view of marriage that is so highly romanticized that, of course, we look at our boring marriages and relationships and say, well, mine's not that. And uh, it causes us to be deeply dissatisfied with the type of marriage that we have. Uh, There was a study done by the University of Edinburgh where they studied uh, romantic comedies between the years 1995 and 2005. So it was things like Runaway Bride, um, Notting Hill, You've Got Mail, Made in Manhattan, While You Were Sleeping, any movie with Julia Roberts qualified. <laughs> and they just basically looked at it and said, if if you constantly watch these movies, like I know you do, I know you love. <laughs> yeah, I just finished watching one as right. you were talking. <laughs> Made in Manhattan, yes. Um, on your watch, most likely. Um <laughs> If you watch these, what happens? Here's what happens. Um, Researchers said two things happen. One, you spoil your love life because it's dull. Mm -hmm. And then second, the lead researcher said that it it shows you that there's a person that can meet all of your needs Mm -hmm. and that that really only happens in the movies, but it deeply impacts us. It is so unrealistic, and yet we just simply buy it because it shows to us that this could be. There's an ideal out there, and I don't match up, right? This whole comparison that we have, I could imagine ultimately for many people who would just simply 
view a number of these things time after right. time again, what's going to end up happening is you have this unrealistic expectation, this unrealistic now standard, and it's never going to be met by nobody uh, unless they're able to come in and airbrush things and Photoshop things and edit things out. And no marriage has an editor, unfortunately, right? right? We live with the consequences right. of just day-to-day living. Well, and just the time frame, right, Chris? I mean, the time frame of the average movie is, let's say, an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes. So all the major problems... Right, can get resolved in an hour and 45. Then you take an average sitcom, maybe a half hour sitcom, take out the commercials. You're looking at what, 23 minutes? And things can get resolved that quickly. We start to get impatient that we're not resolving things as quickly as we can see um, in the movies or on television. And I think, Chris, the, the most damaging message is that I can fix this person. Right? Think of all the shows, all the yeah. movies where you know, where a character will even say, this person's no good for me, mm-hmm. right? But I, c- I can change that person. And we know how damaging that is in research. Yeah, it's damaging because change transformations rarely happen immediately, right? They take time. They take investment. They take me making choices that seem maybe at the time very small and very little baby steps. In reality, those are what get us to a point where we can make bigger changes, but you need a longer view on that. So I'm not, I'm not sure how we get overcome this. We have to be very careful in what we put in, what we think about, ways in which we process relationships, and what we allow to come in as our standards, as, as our views. When Noreen and I do premarital counseling, and we, I know you and Elisa do as well, we always ask this couple who's about who wants to get married, we ask them this, if the person you're engaged to never improved, but never got worse, would you be okay with that person as is? And Chris, you should see the responses from these couples like, no way. I want that person to change. And I'm banking on the fact that he or she will change. And that's you can't do that. No, it's a telling answer. It's a great question that needs to be asked for anyone who's in that position to say, I am about to enter into a relationship with somebody that could be fairly permanent. And even if they never change, that's right. this is who that's I'm right. married to. And I had better be ready. And because it provides for you this notion that, listen, all of us have flaws. All of us are working on things. And uh, we can't expect someone to change as time goes on. They will change, but it's not going to be usually in the way in which we hope or anticipate. And it could be worse. That's right. They could change for the worse. Uh, Chris and I, along with some other uh, Biola faculty and our spouses, we teach a class on Christian relationships about 230 yep. students. Mm-hmm. One student just asked, um, hey, but I thought opposites attract. Yep. Right? I thought opposites attract. And I said, yeah, you know what the rest of that adage is? Opposites attract, marry, and then kill each other. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness, there has to be that core compatibility. Mm-hmm. And w- what's the message for movies, right? Um, Twilight, a, a, a vampire and a werewolf <laughs> can get together. And it's like, uh, and that's just craziness to think that two people from radically different backgrounds can come together and their love is going to change one another. That's, man, that's brutal. It is. And it's it, those are the types of relationships that you worry a lot about because people are led to believe, oh, this could work. We're just so different. We counter, we balance each other out. When, and in, I guess in some personality characteristics, in some ways, it's good to be different and to yeah. kind of complement yeah. each other. But 
it's probably a better adage to say birds of a feather flock together. If you have a whole lot more in common, your compatibility level is higher, you like and have the same sense of humor, maybe personality, the way you view money, those are critical issues that are going to hit you all the time. Then add in spiritual values and morals. Boy, there is no such thing as opposites attract when it comes to that in which there's a healthy outcome. That's why Paul's so wise to say, uh, do not be unequally yoked Mm -hmm. together. And I don't think he, 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 of course, means Christian, non-Christian, of course that. But I think he also means uh, maybe interest in the Lord. You know, uh, um, how passionate are you about the Lord? And then you're marrying a person who exhibits not a lot of passion. And and you're thinking, yeah, but we love each other and that person's going to change. I'm like, man, one psychologist said, your future is right now. And you can't bank on the fact that that person is going to change. So an overly romantic view of love and marriage. Chris, I was... uh, I was teaching a class a couple of years ago and a woman got engaged. And so she was getting married at the end of the semester. And so I just asked her, I said, hey, what are you doing on your honeymoon? And she said this, and I think this is indicative of this over-romanticized view of love. She said, oh, me and my uh, husband, after we're married, we're going to go to a cabin, no electricity, no social media, no television, and we're going to be there for 10 days, just us and our love. And my <laughs> response was... I- I'd bring Scrabble. Wow, that's kind of crazy. You know what I mean? But that's that over romanticized view of love that uh, anybody who's been married any length of time knows that there's peaks and valleys. That's right. And there's times of high romance and there's times where you just got to slug through it. And uh, you got toddlers or uh, financial pressures and marriage isn't particularly romantic. It's not overly sexy right now, but our commitment is what's fueling it. Okay, so an overly romantic view of uh, love and commitment fueled by uh, media. The next one is this idea of what we call starter marriages. Mm -hmm. Um, Those of you who have bought a house, listeners, you know that often Americans will buy a house that they call a starter house. It's with the assumption that we're going to move on to something. Interesting that kids in high school today refer to their first marriage as a starter marriage. That they've grown up in the divorce culture. And so they don't want a divorce, but hey, it would not surprise me whatsoever if I do get a divorce when it comes to my first marriage. And heading into um, commitment like that in the age of divorce kind of is like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And again, we're going to do a whole podcast on this mythical 50% divorce rate. But we've kind of grown up in the shadow of that. So people today expect that my marriage isn't necessarily going to work out. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just something that happens all the time. Yeah, I think what worries us a little bit is this notion that once you accept some of these false cultural assumptions or premises about what it is like to be in a marriage and how quickly and how easily, frankly, it is to get out of something, that there are no consequences or the consequences aren't that great. When in reality, they have huge impact on our emotional well-being. They have impact on friends. Listen to this. We have found Americans since 1985 have gone from saying that they have four close friends to two. Wow. 25% of Americans say they have no single person that they would call a close friend. 
right? And some people are pointing to the likelihood of that very view, these starter marriages and the increasing rate of divorce. Divorce. What it's done is when someone does get a divorce, in their, they're, they're viewing this as, oh, this is just a starter and I can get out of this any time. Well, in the meantime, they're developing relationships that are tied into that marriage. Mm, well, yeah. someone's going to lose. People will be, not have friends. They want to remain loyal to someone. And so all of a sudden now, this lowering in the, amount, the number of friends that people have could very well be to this notion of divorce, how easy it is, and then these ideas of starter marriages. And this is where, again, we mentioned uh, an overly romantic view of marriage fostered by Hollywood. Well, I think it impacts us here when it comes to marriage. I mean, it used to be, right, think about the 1950s. If you were a divorcee, that was like a negative stigma. Mm-hmm. I wrote a book on marriage called Marriage Forecasting. And in it, a psychologist said, based on her research, how long do you think it takes for a couple to hit the rhythm of their marriage? And she said, 10 years. Yeah. So, Chris, uh, uh, for the divorce rate, what's the average? If a couple is going to get divorced their first marriage, what's the average that they call it quits in America? Well, people might have remembered the notion that it was a seven-year itch. It has clearly gone down now. It, in fact, about 15 years ago, people were talking about the five-year and the four-year. Today, mm-hmm. we're looking at an average of around two and a half to three years uh, when people call it quits, which wow. is amazing because wow. they – and by the way, they almost always say when asked by divorce lawyers who kind of keep track of some of these things, why are you getting divorced? They almost always say it's just simply there's just too much conflict going on and they give up. Right. They just yeah. don't have the tools and the equipping, which we're going to talk about in another podcast soon on how do we deal and manage with conflict that all of us are going to face. Yeah. You know, I love what we stole this from you and Noreen, but I remember one time you were talking, telling a story about Noreen said to you, Tim, we had better get this issue worked oh, yeah. out because it's going to be a long 70 years of marriage if we don't. That's right. I think it's a, that's the long view, isn't it? And that subtext is really powerful. Chris, when I was doing my PhD at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, there was a professor who was very famous for giving a lecture, and he called it the exit lecture. In the lecture, he said this, the only thing that makes marriage work is that I have a back door. I have an exit to the marriage, and you even know what it is, by the way. You know if this happens in our marriage, I'm out of here. And the fact that I choose not to use the exit... The back door actually is a sign that I'm committed to the marriage. But knowing the back door is there actually relieves some of the pressure when it comes to marriage. And I'm just thinking of what the Song of Solomon says, right? That a totally different perspective. Love is stronger than death, the ancient writer says. But, But today, I think people know, hey, divorce is not a big deal as much as it used to be. And so I can get out of this thing, and I'm actually glad that I can exit out of this. And we, at the center, we're wanting to take a very different view of marriage and to say, no, you become one flesh with this person. This is a lifelong commitment to that person. And what Noreen said, we better work this out or we're going to be pretty miserable because we're in it for life. This is a lifetime commitment. I think what ends up happening for um, a lot of couples is they realize – um, something is deeply powerful there when they say we're going to even ban the word divorce from our from our conversations. It's just simply we're not going to talk about this because yeah. we are in this. Yeah. Well, what it does is it subtly reminds each of you that listen, I don't care what's going to happen next. I know we're each going to go through difficult times. I know there's going to be conflict. I know that this is not always going to be easy, but I am going to give you this guarantee. I will not give up. I am committed to this. This is something I am in and I will, the only thing that's going to get me out of this is till death does its part. 
that can do some pretty powerful things at a sub, you know, at, at this level for your spouse. But it can also tell a lot to other people, right? In our culture, when people hear that, say, "Yeah, I know I'm struggling, or this is hard," but you know what? I'm committed to this marriage, and I'm gonna, that can be a very powerful model right. for a world that needs to hear and see that kind of ministry or that kind of testimony and that kind of marriage. But Chris, here's a, here's an interesting question. Some of our listeners might be thinking about. So you have a couple, they're both committed Christians, but they say, hey, listen, we're unhappy. I mean, this is unhappy. Yeah. And we experience this 24-7. Yeah. And we don't see this really going away. Yeah. Um, so would God have a stay in an unhappy marriage? Right. That's pretty powerful. It and is. I don't want to minimize it, right? I don't want to minimize the fact that for some listeners, their marriage is just difficult. And the fun left a long time ago. Some couples report not being sexually intimate, right? I mean, that stopped years ago. Mm-hmm. And so you're saying God would have us be miserable in this. And somehow that brings glory to God that I'm miserable in this relationship. That's an interesting question that at the center, how do we answer that kind of Person. Yeah, you answer it by by recognizing that there are just some realities that people do struggle. They're not doing well, and it is hard. And there are very few times in which people would say conflict is actually enjoyable. No one really yeah. loves that. So I think what ends up happening is you have to help people recognize that there is and will be something very deep, very powerful, and very important for couples, which we'd like yeah. to offer, and that is the word hope. Yeah. All marriages, even those that struggle, there was a great study done by Prepare and Enrich. They took 29,000 people and they they surveyed them and they found out for those that were struggling, when they came back three years later, after just simply having time and wow. looking at some things, they actually reported that their marriages were now good or even better. Wow. And that's, there's hope there. So for couples, some of the things could be, of course, it could be some major things that have to go on. This might involve bringing in professionals. It might even, you know, involve getting counseling. It might even being taking steps to help get, you know, some of these things back. And that could be really hard and take a lot of time. But for other couples, it could just simply be some things that they can start doing even today. They can start doing some things like we talked about last time, showing more gratitude, taking more time to look out for somebody's interest, start thinking about ways they can improve and change, start thinking about different things that they can do to bring joy and hope back into something. And then what oftentimes happens is that hope can spur us to change and we can realize we can do this. We just need to make some tweaks or even some major changes, but there's an outcome out there that could be very powerful and attainable if we do some things and take some steps. And Chris, I, I love that. That study is remarkable. Yeah. That in, in three years? Yeah, within a number of uh, wow. a short amount of time, couples have, many of them had re-rated and found that they had gone from wow. just simply very poor or neutral ratings of their relationship or their marriage to increasing it. Yeah, I think reading, uh, I, I think I read that study and they mentioned that reading a Mielhoff book on marriage <laughs> was what, what was, maybe I, maybe I read into the article. Be, I think, be, yeah, no, yeah, to be fair, I think I, I think you're probably yeah. right. Hey, um, one thing we do with couples, so like, let's say a couple says to us, Noreen and I, we speak at Family Life Marriage Conferences. We've been doing it for over 20 years. And um, I remember meeting with some couples where they would say, I'm unhappy. Yeah. And I said to them, can I just for a second ask you to define one word for me? Define happiness. Yeah. Like, you're unhappy. Well, how mm-hmm. would you define happy? Because there, 
that's really important because there's two different definitions of happiness. One, we could take the modern definition, right? Look up the word happiness in a dictionary and you'll get something like um, a, a pleasurable feeling. Mm-hmm. So I could be happy helping the poor or I could be happy killing Nazi zombies, Call of Duty. <laughs> but let's for a second just take an, an older definition of happiness, one that actually a philosopher named Aristotle gave. And it was this, happiness is actually you maturing as a person. He called it virtue, that, that you're happy when you're actually growing. So I remember speaking at a conference of like a thousand people, and I said to them, how many of you would say, using the first definition, mm-hmm. that you're in a constant state of happiness in your marriage? Well, very few hands, and they're mostly people kissing up, right? You know, because <laughs> they know date night is Saturday night at the conference. But then you say... How many of you would say, using Aristotle's definition of happiness, that you have matured through the course of this marriage and hands go up everywhere? So we need to ask the question, hey, by happiness, do you mean a constant pleasurable feeling? Well, then, yeah, guess what? I don't doubt that there's a lot of couples who go through deep seasons of unhappiness. Mm -hmm. But if we use God's definition, because I find it interesting in the book of James, James says, consider it joy when you hit hard times. And that joy is roughly the same Greek word Aristotle is talking about, right? So um, I, think it, I, I think we need to ask the question, we're going to do a whole podcast on this, is what is God's purpose for marriage in the first place? And it may not be that we're constantly happy. First definition, I think the purpose of marriage is you can be assured, even in the unhappy marriages, God's using this difficulty to mature us. Yeah, and even uh, Gary Thomas, the guy who wrote a book, Sacred oh, Marriage, has as his tagline, right? It. What if marriages weren't desi- were designed not to make us happy, yeah. but to make us what? Holy. And that's that notion, right? This is a process. So, you know, I remember back, uh, if, if you asked us about our, our marriage and what it was like, we would say we're happy. In fact, in fact, I'd say we're very happy. We've been married 28 years. But I'll tell you, we have had a couple of seasons in there in which things did not go mm. well, right? Each couple can experience these. For us, it was the birth of our second child. While it was joyful and awesome, it just created tensions that we weren't ready for. And that year six and year seven were mm. very mm. difficult, very painful. And in fact, if you were to ask us that question, I'd say, not only are we not happy, I'm not even sure what we're doing. This is a very difficult yeah. for us. One of the things that I would suggest if you face this or if you're in this now, is recognize that you cannot wait to get help. What's the average couple wait when they're seeing significant issues or problems? The average couple waits, ready, six years before they get help. But when they talk about couples that divorce, less than 1% have actually even gone to therapy or counseling that year they got divorced. So here's what's happened. Couples are just waiting too long. There are so many cool things and important things that you need to be doing during that time that are available. In fact, if you can go to our cmr.biola.edu, website, you can find a number of conferences that take place here. Wherever city you're at, I guarantee you, there is some sort of date night, there is some sort of marriage conference, there is some sort of weekend away that you can take advantage of. That's how you begin to get out of this. For Elisa and I, we just simply were asked to start talking about relationships and marriage, and we had to sit down and have hard conversations about what was going on and why we weren't connecting in this, and what had gone, and what had happened is we had just let things things began to disconnect wow. and never had time to follow up with these. By the way, we went and did a marriage weekend uh, after that. It was extremely important and powerful for yeah. us to get a handle on this and begin to see, ah, this 
is some of the reasons why we're struggling. We are just not having time to talk about some of these deeper issues that are going on. How long did how long did couples wait? Well, they the, the couples wait an average of six years to get help. Once the once the fracture starts, they're waiting. Six so, years. Chris, imagine taking that philosophy and applying it to anything else in life. To your car. Your car. Exactly. Right. Your, uh, your fancy watch that you wear that launches missiles. Yeah. But uh, imagine that. Your car, it would not work anymore no. if you waited because the engine light goes off and you're like, okay, I'm going to wait six years. Well, what? yeah, it's like termites in the house. You see oh, termites, yeah. you see them there and you go, you know what? This is fine. I think I'll just wait a couple of years and we'll just see. It'll go away. Or maybe this is what everybody does. And in reality, guess what? Six years later, you're going to be facing a much bigger cost than anything else. So, Chris, we've not shaken the stigma of marital counseling, do you think, by and large? You know, I think it's funny because there are people more, the younger people, I believe, are saying, you know what, it's okay to talk about Mm. issues, problems, and to admit that we're not doing well. And they tend to, not all, but they tend to go out and not feel kind of shame or embarrassment to admit they've got some issues or problems. I think it's a little bit of the older generation. There's still a little bit of ambivalence about or some way that it's associated with to admit that I'm not doing well, yeah. or even to go to a marriage conference, people will say, well, if I just simply That's go to right. a marriage conference, I'm going to tell right. everybody that I'm not doing well, and I, I don't want to talk about that, and I don't want anybody to know about that. So I think a little bit is fading, but I we worry a little bit, but that still kind of can be there for some couples. I just had a couple come up to us at a marriage conference in Boise, and uh, we were just talking to each other, and, and uh, she said, you know, I get the craziest reactions from my friends when I tell them what I'm doing. I'm like, like what? She said, well, well we were talking to some friends because they want to watch our kids for the conference. And uh, and the friend said, so you're going to a marriage conference? She says, oh, actually, this is our third one. And that response was like, I'll, I'll pray for you. It was like, <laughs> so the assumption is, right, the car can't work anymore. And now it's time for us to go to a mechanic where pre-maintenance mm-hmm. is incredibly important uh, to have healthy marriages. Yeah, that's right. So we've taken a look at in this podcast, we took a look at uh, an overly romanticized view of marriage, right, via Hollywood. Right. Um, and we got to be careful, right? Entertainment is great, but it can spoil our love life if that research from the University of Edinburgh is true. Second, this idea of starter marriages, like we, we've kind of embraced the fact as a culture that, you know, divorce happens all the time. Yeah. And it's probably going to happen to my marriage. I don't want it to, but I won't be shocked if it does. And we're kind of at the Center for Marriage offering a different perspective on that. We're more of a biblical view of a lifetime commitment to another person, a one flesh relationship. So um, what are we going to do next time? Well, next time we're going to talk about uh, ways in which uh, certain emotions get triggered very quickly for couples. And it's the basis for a lot of our conflicts. But unfortunately, many couples simply fail to realize that an argument about money is really about some other deeper issue oftentimes. An argument about being late is not always about being late. And so that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to tackle that next time. So. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Hey, here's what we want you to do if this has been helpful. Uh, and if you're looking for more opportunities to engage with some of this material, if you want to look at some blogs, some videos, if you want to hear about some conferences in your area, go to the CMR website. Go to cmr.biola.edu and uh, you can find out all kinds of cool things going on and look at some resources and tools that we have available for you guys. So, Well, we're really glad you joined us for today's podcast. For more resources on marriage and relationships, visit our website at cmr.biola.edu. And we'll see you next time on The Art of Relationships. Relationships.